0: Chapter 4 Part 1 of US Marine Operations in Korea 1950 to 1953 Volume 2 The Inchon Soul Operation by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Planning Phase. The Champion Globetrotters of the 1st Marine Division were the men of the 3rd Battalion 7th Marines. Before returning to their homes from Korea, These military tourists would have traveled entirely around the world by various forms of land, water, and air transportation. The unit was originally an element of the 6th Marines, FMF Lant, serving afloat with the 6th Fleet in the Mediterranean. On 12 August 1950, the CP aboard the USS Yellowstone at Suda Bay Crete received a message from CNO ordering the battalion to the Far East. Lt. Col. Frederick R. Dowsett, Deputy Commander, noted that the dispatch had bypassed such channels as CMC and the 6th Fleet. This irregularity, he learned later, was explained by the urgency of an order which had been framed by Admiral Sherman while General Cates was present. It directed that the APA Bexar arrive on 14 August at Suda Bay and depart two days later with the troops. The rub was that these Marines were dispersed on various ships all over the Mediterranean. Given the rush job of picking up, the scattered elements of the battalion was the USS Leyte, which was due to return to Norfolk for refitting afterwards and thence to the Far East via the Panama Canal. Not only did the carrier complete its assignment before the deadline, but the Bexar also arrived at Bay on the evening of the 14th. Both ships had hardly dropped anchor when the LCVPs and LCMs were shuttling troops and cargo to the transport and the AKA Montag, which was to accompany it to the Far East. On the 16th, the two vessels departed according to schedule by way of Port Said and the Suez Canal. Security regulations were rigidly enforced, with only one stop being made when the vessels anchored at Ceylon for six hours to take on fuel. Marine officers were figuratively as well as literally at sea, since they had no idea of the specific mission awaiting the battalion in the Far East. Unaware of plans for the Inchon landing, they envisioned the troops being employed as the ship-based raiding party of some American task force. Meanwhile, their future teammates of the 7th Marines were preparing to embark from San Diego. Colonel Litzenberg and his officers had made a good start at Camp Pendleton even before the activation date of 17 August 1950. In order to build up from cadres of former 6th Marine's troops, this regiment received the largest proportion of combat-ready reservists of any major unit in the 1st Marine Division, about 50%, counting the augmentation personnel to bring 3-6 up to war strength when it would be taken into the outfit in Japan. CNO had set 3 September as the date of embarkation. But Headquarters FMF PAC prepared the embarkation plans while the regimental staff solved problems of organization and equipment so effectively that the 7th Marines sailed on the 1st, thus beating the deadline by two days. Orders came to El Toro on 16 August for the overseas movement of the remaining elements of the 1st MAW. Units affected were Wing Headquarters Squadron 1 and MAG 12. Comprising Headquarters Squadron 12, Service Squadron 12, VMF-312, VMF-212, VMF(N)-542, and the rear echelon of VMF(N)-513, VMF-312 and the rear echelon of VMF(N)-513 were loaded on the USS Sitco Bay with their aircraft and sailed on 24 August. Three days later, VMF-212 and vmfn 542 embarked on the USS Cape Esperance and the USNS General Morton weighed anchor with the remaining components on 1 September. This completed the overseas movement of the first mall, since General Harris and his staff had departed from El Toro by air for Japan the day before. Working Around the Clock the first echelon of the 1st Marine Division Planning Group had its preliminary briefing on 19 August, and the tractor elements of the attack force were scheduled to sail for the objective area on 9 September. This left an interval of 20 days for most of the Inchon planning, probably the shortest period ever allotted to a major amphibious assault. Less than one fourth of the officers and men of the 1st Marine Division staff were on the Mount McKinley when planning commenced. The Marine planners aboard the Mount McKinley were short on elbow room as well as personnel, time, and equipment. Although it was an advantage to have the planning groups of the attack force and landing force together, the ship did not provide enough space for both without crowding. Moreover, the already undermanned Marine contingent had to be further reduced late in August by sending several officers to Kobe to meet incoming units. Thus the G2 section, to cite one example, consisted of only two officers, one of whom was detached on this duty for a week. The issuance of and adherence to a planning schedule was utterly impossible, commented the 1st Marine Division report. Only by a virtual, around-the-clock working day, concurrent planning by Attack Force, FIBGRU 1, and Landing Force, 1st Mar Div, Willing teamwork by both and especially the amphibious know-how of key staff members gained by long experience, was it possible to complete and issue plans and orders for a most difficult landing operation? The time-space factor denied any coordinated orientation, prohibited even the most elementary rehearsal, made it difficult to distribute orders, and gave subordinate units very little time for formulation and distribution of their plans. Command relationships during the embarkation and assault phases were as follows. sink Fee, overall command of com nav and CG-10 Corps. com nav command of Com-Fibgru-1 and cg 1st Div. All the top commanders were concentrated in Tokyo with the arrival of Admiral Struble on 25 August. This facilitated the planning and allowed important decisions to be worked out in conference between the principal commanders. Planning was based mainly on studies made by FibgRU one as prospective attack force commander. It was conducted entirely on a concurrent basis by the attack force and landing force groups aboard the Mount McKinley. No step was taken by either without the full knowledge and consent of the other. 10-Core Schema Maneuver Army planning had been initiated by the Joint Strategic Plans and Operations Group until 16 August, when the Special Planning Staff was set up at GHQ to issue directives for Operation Plan Chromite. Published on 12 August as Sink-Fee Operation Plan No. 100 B, it was based on these assumptions A. That the North Korean ground advance would be stopped in time to permit the buildup of our forces in South Korea b. That our forces in South Korea would be built up to the capability of mounting effective offensive operations against NKPA forces opposing them. c. That we retain air and naval supremacy in the area of operation. d. That the NKPA ground forces would not receive major reinforcements from the USSR or Red China. e. That there would be no major change in the basic disposition of the NKPA forces. It was understood from the beginning that the special plan staff, headed by General Ruffner, would be the nucleus of the future 10 Corps staff. In order to have the benefit of specialized amphibious knowledge, 10 Marine and 2 Navy officers of TTU Mobile Training Team ABLE were assigned on 19 August. Colonel H.A. Forney, Deputy Chief of Staff. Lieutenant Colonel J. Tabor, Assistant Coordinator, Fire Support Coordination Center. Lieutenant Colonel C.E. Warren, Assistant G-4. Major J.N. McLaughlin, Assistant G-3. Major J.F. Warner, Assistant G-3. Major C.P. Wyland, Air Officer, Fire Support Coordination Center. Major V.H. Vogel, Assistant G-4. Captain H.S. Coppage, Assistant G-2. Captain T.A. Mannion, Assistant Signal Officer, Fire Support Coordination Center, Captain V.J. Robinson, Target Info Officer, Lieutenant L.N. Lay, U.S. Navy, Assistant Surgeon, Lieutenant W.A. Sheltran, U.S. Navy, Assistant Naval Gunfire Officer, Fire Support Coordination Center. These officers did not begin their new assignment in time to contribute to the preliminary Ten Corps overall schema maneuver. The main provisions, as communicated to General Smith at General Ruffner's briefing conference of 23 August, were as follows. 1. The 1st Marine Division, as the landing force, was to seize the urban area of Inchon, Line A to A, to capture a beachhead, Line B to B, to advance as rapidly as possible and seize Kimpo Airfield, Line C to C, to clear out the south bank of the Han River, Line D to D. To cross the river, seize Seoul, and secure the commanding ground to the north, E to E. And finally, to fortify and occupy this line with reduced forces until relieved, apparently by the 3rd Infantry Division still in the United States, whereupon the division was to recross the Han and seize a line, F to F, about 25 miles southeast of Seoul. 2. The 7th Infantry Division was to land behind the Marines and advance on their right flank to seize the commanding ground south of Seoul and the south bank of the river, line D to D, to continue the advance to phase line E to E, and to conduct a reconnaissance in force to the south, line F to F. There, on the line from Suwon to Kyongyang-ni, the 7th Infantry Division and 1st Marine Division would form the strategic anvil as the 8th Army forces advanced from the Pusan perimeter in the role of hammer. 3. The 1st Marine Aircraft Wing was to furnish air support, air direction, and air warning for the Corps with units operating from Kimpo Airfield. It was also to be prepared to operate a control center ashore on order. The special plan staff gave General Smith a study explaining the purposes of these maneuvers. The B2B line in this study appeared to be a suitable beachhead line, he commented, and we decided to concentrate our efforts on plans for its seizure. Subsequent operations would be reserved for later consideration. Intelligence Planning for Incheon Good planning, of course, depended on accurate intelligence. All possible information about the objective area had been gathered by the staff of FIBGRU-1 before the arrival of the 1st Marine Division planners. Air Force planes had taken hundreds of photographs at every stage of the tide. Hydrographic reports and navigation charts had been studied. Army and Navy men familiar with Inchon during the American occupation after World War II were interrogated as well as NKPA prisoners captured by the 8th Army. Although a great deal of useful data was compiled, some disturbing questions remained. How high were the seawalls of Inchon? Were the mudflats suitable for landing either troops or vehicles at low tide? Approximately how many NKPA guns were hidden on Walmydo? These were some of the intelligence gaps which must be filled before an effective plan could be drawn up for an assault landing. FIBGRU-1 made its material available to the G-2 section of the 1st Marine Division, and the two staffs worked together on the Mount McKinley in close cooperation. Attached were the 163rd Military Intelligence Service Detachment, MISD, and the 441st Counterintelligence Corps, CIC, team. Both of these units had been furnished by FECOM and consisted of Army-commissioned and enlisted personnel, as well as Native Koreans serving in liaison, interpretation, and translation capacities. Even when a question could not be answered conclusively, it was up to the G2 sections of the attack force and landing force to arrive at a conclusion for planning purposes. For instance, it was never satisfactorily determined from available sources, Janus publications, strategic engineering studies, naval attaché reports, and photographic interpretation reports, whether LVTs would be able to traverse the mudflats of the Incheon Harbor area. And since there remained some doubt, planning proceeded on the assumption that the answer was negative. This proved to be the correct as well as the prudent decision later developments revealed. Another G2 planning problem concerned the effect that the height of the seawalls would have upon the landing. Photographs at hourly stages of the tide made it appear that the masonry was too high for the dropping of ramps at any time. As a solution, G2 officers hit upon a device reminiscent of the storming of castles during the Middle Ages. Scaling ladders were recommended with the suggestion that they be built of aluminum with hooks at one end to be attached to the masonry. Construction was started at Kobe, but the order could be only partially filled before D-Day and wooden ladders were built as substitutes. It is hardly necessary to point out the importance of estimates as to the number and defensive capabilities of the enemy, yet the G2 section on the Mount McKinley were up against a peculiar situation cited in the 1st Marine Division report. Our accumulated knowledge of the enemy's military tactics prior to our landing at Inchon on 15 September 1950 consisted almost in its entirety of knowledge about the enemy's offense. With but few exceptions, UN forces were forced to take a defensive stand and denied the opportunity to study large-scale enemy defensive tactics from actual combat. Thus it was that our assault landing was made with relatively little prior knowledge regarding the enemy's probable reaction to a large-scale offensive of this nature, particularly when it involved the penetration into the very heart of his newly acquired domain. Photographic coverage showed the Incheon Harbor area to be honeycombed with gun positions and other defensive installations. On the other hand, daily aerial observation indicated that most of them were not occupied. G2 conclusions during the planning phase often had to be based on such conflicting evidence, even though the penalties of faulty interpretation might be drastic. But after being viewed with due suspicion, Signs of negative enemy activity were finally accepted as valid in estimates of light-to-moderate NKPA resistance. Sadly lacking was information on the objective area, commented the Division G2 report. More so was that on the enemy in the area. Early in September, however, the attack force and landing force concurred in the initial 10 Corps estimate of 1,500 to 2,500 NKPA troops in the immediate area, consisting largely of newly-raised personnel. Radio reports of first-hand observations in the objective area, though coming too late for initial planning purposes, confirmed some of the G-2 estimates. This dangerous mission was undertaken by Lieutenant Eugene F. Clark, a naval officer on General MacArthur's J.S. Pog staff. U.S. and British Marines provided an escort on 1 September when the British destroyer Charity brought him from Sasebo to a point along the coast where the South Korean patrol vessel, PC-703, waited to land him at Yonghondo, an island about 15 miles southwest of Incheon. Clark went ashore with a small arsenal of firearms, grenades, and ammunition, as well as 30 cases of sea rations and 200 pounds of rice. He quickly made allies of the 400 friendly Korean inhabitants of the island and organized his own private little army of about 150 youths from 14 to 18 years old. These troops were posted about Yonghundo for security since the nearby island, Tebudo, was occupied by 400 NKPA soldiers within waiting distance at low tide. The naval officer had no illusion as to what his fate might be in the event of capture. Day and night, he kept a grenade within reach since he did not intend to be taken alive. When the long-expected enemy attack from Tebudo materialized, he commandeered a one-lung South Korean motor sampan and fought it out with the NKPA motor sampan escorting boats filled with soldiers. The enemy began the strange naval battle with a few badly aimed rounds from a 37mm tank gun. Clark and his crew of three friendly Koreans finished it with a long burst from a 50- caliber machine gun. After sinking the NKPA motor sampan, he destroyed another boat with 18 soldiers aboard and captured three prisoners for questioning. One night, the intrepid lieutenant rode a dinghy to the Inchon seawall. When the tide went out, he tested the mire by wading in it up to his waist. This experience led to the sending of a radio report, Inchon not suitable for landing either troops or vehicles across the mud. Korean youths, posing as fishermen, brought intelligence which Clark included in his daily radio messages. One of these spies made an effort to count the guns on Walmido and describe the locations. Others took measurements of the Incheon seawall and penetrated as far inland as Seoul to report numbers and positions of NKPA troops. Clark declined all offers to evacuate him. As the climax of his exploit. He managed to restore the usefulness of the lighthouse on Palmy Island, which the enemy had put out of commission. The structure, the former entrance beacon for Inchon by way of Flying Fish Channel, served him as a refuge when he had to leave Young Hundo hurriedly, just ahead of NKPA troops who landed in force and butchered fifty civilians of both sexes. Clark, who received a Silver Star, stuck it out on Palmy until midnight of 14 September. When he turned on the beacon light to guide the amphibious task force. End of chapter 4, part 1. Read by Aaron Bennett.